Your seats, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 21. Isaiah chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you for any reason, just a reminder, the Scripture text is printed in the, ser- uh, in the bulletin. That's what that thing is called. And uh, just a brief word, um, as Kurt said, thank you on our behalf for, for earlier. I'll, I'll keep this brief, but thank you to Dale for his kind words and the rest of the session. But uh, as Dale was mentioning several things that have happened in the past year, I felt like we would be remiss if we didn't point out many of those things were accomplished by the efforts of far more people than myself or Kurt or the rest of the, the church staff. And so we are grateful for all that you have done in the past year. Thank you for your appreciation of us. Hopefully you've had time to flip to Isaiah 21 by now. That was the main reason I wanted to say a few words. Isaiah 21, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on. It comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media, all the sighing she has caused, I bring to an end. Therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me. Like the pangs of a woman in labor, I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights, and behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you the oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tema. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's now ask for his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. O God, our God, our help in ages past, be our help right now. Give us ears to hear all that you have to say to your people. 
be our watchman. Warn us from troubles without, troubles within, so that we might find safety. We ask all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. The watchman has a thankless job, but a necessary job. So we should give thanks for the watchman. We should heed his call. Again, his job is thankless, but necessary. It's thankless. What does a good day look like for a watchman? Is it a good day when he notices an oncoming attack and alerts everyone? Well, it's better than not noticing the oncoming attack. But if he does his job well, then lives might be saved. But, but, but if he does it well, he also has to tell everyone bad news. There are also days when he notices things that might be an attack, that might become a problem. His boss probably thinks he's the watchman who cried wolf. Or his boss might begin to get irritated because now he has to go and investigate another potential threat. As I said, the watchman's job is often thankless. But it's necessary because the alternative is to let potential threats go. They, they fester, they blow up and grow into bigger problems. You let the enemy overtake you. Watchman's job, it's necessary. And again, the watchman's job is thankless because most people don't like to hear bad news. Not me, you might be thinking. I value constructive criticism. I've known people who say that. In practice, most people value constructive criticism a whole lot more when they seek it out than when it comes unsolicited. Isn't that the true test? How do you handle unsolicited criticism? How do you handle unconstructive criticism, deconstructive, destructive criticism? When your critic is angrier than they realize and doesn't understand that their kind suggestion, which might feel like a double-barreled blast, makes you just a bit defensive. A relevant side note for you, my 2021 has been better than my 2020, but we are all still carrying a little 2020 around with us. Anger, Anxiety, the worry, the overreactions, the lack of empathy and good listening, and probably more. Now, maybe you are the one who is doing better than the rest of us. It's good to be you. The one who's not affected by everyone else's anxiety and overreactions, maybe. Or maybe you too are dust, as Psalm 139 says. Maybe God knows your frame as well. Maybe he knows your frailty, your tendency to sin, your, your self-blindness that sin causes. And Maybe God knows that you need a watchman too. Someone to call out when danger approaches, both from the outside and from the inside. Because what did Jesus say, Matthew 15, 19? For out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Maybe we need a watchman who offers hard truth and true hope. Three points today about the watchman. First, we see the watchman's conflict. The watchman's conflict, verses 1 through 10. To understand this conflict, we need to first understand the watchman's initial message and the watchman's identity. About the identity, I think Isaiah is the watchman, both in verses 1 through 10 and 11 and 12. Now, not everyone agrees with that. That's okay. 
Seems the best explanation to me, but what is his initial message? Well, it's about a nation whose destruction is coming like a whirlwind, it says. Which nation? Well, we don't find out until verse 9. Isaiah may not have found out until then either, but let's get that part out of the way. Verse 9b, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Who's Babylon? Revelation 18.2, written years later, treats Babylon as, quote, typical of the godless world. They weren't nice people. They weren't godly people. Babylon was a city within Assyria. That's the bad enemy that everyone feared in Isaiah's day who wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel in about 721 B.C. <clears throat> While they were a city within the Assyrian Empire, they became their own empire which conquered Assyria, which then conquered Judah or southern Israel, Isaiah's home, about 100 years after Isaiah's prophetic ministry, somewhere between 600 and 580 BC, defeat came in at least two phases. Now, if you're paying attention to all those dates, because everybody loves dates, right? You'd notice that Babylon hasn't even come on the scene of history when Isaiah likely prophesied. He is prophesying about their downfall before they've even risen to power. Their downfall was nearly 200 years away from when he said this, at the hands of the Medes and the Persians, who are, that, that's who Elam is in verse 2, the Persians. So Isaiah's prophecy is so accurate, some people think, well, that's just impossible. Maybe somebody else wrote it who lived much later. Or maybe there were two Isaiahs, maybe even three. Maybe prophesying something this accurately is just impossible, is the idea. It's not human. And you see, that is kind of the point. It's not human, not merely human. Second Peter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, one of the three persons of the eternal Godhead, carried them along. The Holy Spirit gave Isaiah, the one and only, the words, the message, and he spoke. He spoke. According to his own personality, word choices and all that. Isaiah, whoever he was, was an educated man. How do you know? Well, try to translate the Hebrew of Isaiah sometime. It's not easy. Personally, I have to look up every other word some weeks. Is it impossible for God the Holy Spirit to do this? To speak of the future accurately through mere men. No more impossible than it was for God to speak the world into existence. No more impossible than it is for the infinite God to baby talk to you and me and tell us things that we can understand on our own level. So Isaiah prophesied about Babylon's downfall ahead of time, before it happened, before they even rose to power. And as he does it, he uses this, this watchman analogy. Verse 6 for thus the Lord said to me, go, set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. Then verse 8, then he who saw cried out upon a watchtower, I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights 
Again, I think Isaiah is the watchman. That analogy is also used of Jeremiah the prophet as well. Because what does the watchman of Isaiah 21 do? Well, he announces the fall of Babylon in verse 9. He, he waits, he watches, he listens diligently, very diligently. The Hebrew of verse 7 is something like, listen, listen, listen. It wasn't an easy job. Required constant vigilance, verse 8 says. Around the clock duty. But that wasn't even the hardest part, it seems. The hardest part was the announcement of bad news. Armies coming, riders approaching, destruction of Babylon. Now, before we dive into that, how hard it was to deliver that news. Interesting note here. Most people think this is a prediction of what happens in Daniel chapter 5 when King Belshazzar was throwing a grand feast which was interrupted by the handwriting on the wall which said mene, mene, tekel, and parson which roughly means you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You don't measure up King Belshazzar so you're about to meet your doom. Isaiah puts it, This way for now, verse 5, they prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield, oil the shield, get your shield ready for battle. Hate to interrupt your dinner and your grand feast, but you need to put down your wine glass and oil up the shield. Prep for battle because the barbarians are at the gates. Of course, Isaiah didn't relish giving bad news like this. In verse 2, he says this is a stern vision, a severe one. And it affected the messenger. Verse 3, Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. There's conflict, internal conflict for Isaiah. In anguish, he says, in pain, like a pregnant woman in labor. Some ladies may disagree, but he is using poetic exaggeration to say it's awful. He's in pain, like a migraine on steroids. Can't see, can't hear. Horrified, appalled, trembling. Just because Babylon deserved this, just because future generations of Israel would have longed for this, doesn't mean Isaiah enjoys it. He cares about people. Even as he announces their demise, even though they aren't listening, and it hurts to care that much. In the words of one pastor, The most difficult part of pastoral ministry is keeping a caring heart. The caring heart makes the pastor, and the caring heart nearly kills the pastor. Or as my friend Brad once told me, one of the hardest battles in ministry is the battle to not grow cynical. We're sinners speaking to other sinners. It's hard not to get discouraged with all of that. But you know, there is something good and right In Isaiah's conflict, his tears, his anguish. Something that should speak, not just to pastors and missionaries, but to all of us. Because all of us are missionaries. All of us are ambassadors of King Jesus. Where we live, work, and play. Across the street and around the world. All of us. We all need a caring heart like this. 
even if we have to proclaim the bad news of the gospel. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death, which makes the good news feel like good news. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One Monday, a famous Scottish preacher spoke to his friend, another famous Scottish preacher. They talked about what preachers talk about on Mondays. What did you preach on Sunday? Hell was the one-word answer. Follow-up question. Did you preach it with tears? When we proclaim God's word like the watchman or in a conversation with our neighbor, if we proclaim the bad news, which we all deserve, we should proclaim it with tears, with compassion, in the hope that they might also hear the good news. That's the watchman's conflict. He must speak, but it pains him to speak. May we all know that feeling. After the watchman's conflict, next we see this. We see the watchman's call, verses 11 and 12. His call or his message, what words does he use as he calls out? Also, what's the connection between the oracle of verses 11 and 12 and the one that comes before it, verses 1 through 10? It's probably a thematic connection and a geographic connection. The thematic connection, easy enough to see. Isaiah talks about the watchman once again. And you see that. Again, in verses 11 and 12, different Hebrew word, but probably a synonym. As for the geographic connection, it applies really to this whole passage. Duma or Seir, those are both parts of Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. In Arabia, mentioned in the next section of verses, Arabia is roughly where you'd find Saudi Arabia, but maybe a little farther north, And both of these places lie broadly between Israel and Babylon, the subject of verses 1 through 10. The message seems to be when Babylon gets conquered, after they conquer Israel, everyone in between is going to get wiped out too. Oh, yay, more happy news, right? This is how Israel would have felt. Hard word for them to hear because they were trusting in other nations to protect them from still other nations. They were the little kid on the block. And God was saying to Israel, you can't trust any of your neighbors. I will make all of your neighbors rise and fall whenever I want. You can only trust me ultimately. He seems to allude to this in verse 10, that his threshed and winnowed one who was beaten down time and time again, be weary of hearing this, more destruction. Now with that, we're ready to hear what God says to Edom or to Duma, a city in Edom, which sounds like silence in Hebrew. Verse 11, the oracle concerning Duma. One is calling to me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? That makes perfect sense, right? Is Isaiah talking about another watchman or himself? Well, I think it's Isaiah, but the message remains the same. Someone from Duma or Edom is asking watchmen, what time of the night? That likely means, is it still night? Is it morning yet, metaphorically speaking? Is there good news on the horizon? Or as someone puts it, how long will the night of oppression under Assyria go on? Assyria made everyone's life miserable, including Edom's. 
Not that you should feel too bad for Edom. Amos, the prophet, prophesied about the same time as Isaiah. He said this of Edom. The book of Amos, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Who is Edom's brother? Or who is Esau's brother? It's Jacob, later renamed Israel, of course. Edom has brutally treated her brother Israel, so God will judge them. And Isaiah 21, 11 and 12 seems to take place during that judgment. And they want to know how much longer it will last. I mean, isn't that a natural question? When you experience hard times, whether they're your fault or not, wouldn't you give anything to know how long it would last. That's what Edom is asking in verse 11. How long until good news comes? And so what does the watchman say? Does he give peace where there is no peace just to satisfy his audience? Or does he give hard truth? When will the night of oppression end? Or, or as they say, what time of the night, what time of the night will relief finally come? Is it still night Verse 12, the watchman says, morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. Morning comes and also the night. What, is, what does that mean? It means morning comes, relief comes, but not for long. Night comes once again, and that right soon. Why? Well, putting the historical puzzle pieces together because once Assyria falls and stops bothering Edom, Babylon's going to come. And there'll be a real pain in the rear until someone else conquers them too. No relief for Edom. But actually there is. If you can hear the watchman's call, it's tricky. The end of verse 12, if you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. You, you hear an invitation, a call, come back again. What, what does he mean? Well, if you will inquire, inquire. Do you really want to inquire? Do you really want to seek wisdom? Not just about the time of day. What is the weather tomorrow? When is this war going to end? Do you really want to inquire? Then as he says, come back again, or as the King James says, return. Come. Return even repent. You've heard this word a few dozen times in Isaiah so far, haven't you? Same word we've seen before, the remnant shall return or repent. Basically the same word. They return to God by repenting. And you know, as Isaiah has peeled back the layers of the onion for us, we've begun to see that this remnant is not just Israel. Remnant will include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, even Edom. Lousy, no good Edom who is oppressing God's people. Return, repent. Be part of the remnant who returns and repents. How do you know if you're part of God's people, part of his remnant? I'll make it real simple. John 3.16, for God so or thus loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever 
believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Have you done that? Then to God be the glory for enabling you to do that, proving that you are one of his people. That's the watchman's call. It's not simply watch out, danger. His call also tells you how to avoid danger. That's not just a message for Edom. It's a message for all have sinned. All who have earned the wages of sin or death. Jesus said at one point, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But if you repent, turning from sin, turning to Jesus, you will be saved. And then even if Assyria clips you in the crossfire, you will have a life and have it more abundantly. That's the watchman's call. Return to the Lord, for he will surely heal, for he will surely forgive. And then lastly, we see this, the watchman's cautionary tale, verses 13 through 17, the watchman's cautionary tale. Look with me at verse 13. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia, you will lodge, O caravans of the Dedanites. Dedanites, all those mentioned here, all these names, peoples, locations you don't recognize, all of them are broadly from Arabia. But why are these Dedanites? Why are they lodging in the thickets, in the thorn bushes? Well, why are those from Tema bringing these fugitives bread? Because the army that most likely is wiping out Babylon is wiping them out too. The Dedanites are fleeing. Verse 15, for they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. What's going on here? What's the cautionary tale? Well, I think it's at least this. Don't become like Kedar or Arabia or one of these places. But I think there's more here. You see, back then, people were not making pilgrimages to Arabia, not on anyone's sightseeing list. It's far away. It's mostly a desert from the perspective of God's people. So you might be tempted to think, if you're one of these people in the desert, you can escape the wars and rumors of war. As Lee Corso says, not so fast, my friend. One commentator says these were the freest the most inaccessible of the tribes, but Assyria's long arm will reach even them at God's command. Verses 16 and 17 say, For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. Kedar in Arabia once again as well. Verse 17, And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. I don't know a lot about Kedar and other places in this region, but they are mentioned at least one other place in Scripture. Psalm 120, verses 5 through 7. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Peace-hating tents of Kedar are one day going to be wiped out because Christ our King promises to conquer all of His and all of our enemies. And again, I think the message is this. Don't think you can hide from God's wrath just because you live in Podunkville, far-flung, far away from the major interstates. 
As Psalm 139 says, David says, where can I flee from your presence? If you don't already know that answer, just turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah found out the hard way. The answer was was nowhere. There's nowhere to flee from God's presence, not even in the belly of a whale or a great fish. Isaiah was a better watchman than Jonah. Not that that's very hard, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah was a holy watchman, a prophet who was warning God's people and anyone else who was listening that danger was approaching, that God's people had veered off his path, broken his covenant, and therefore judgment was coming. And you can't flee from God's watchful eye no matter how far away you are. Did Isaiah enjoy delivering that message? Probably not from what we see here. He didn't enjoy this message of verses 1 through 10, even even though most Israelites would have loved to have seen Babylon suffer. No reason to think he enjoyed the, the next message. Morning comes, but also the night. More night, more darkness, more dread, more fear, more oppression just from a different enemy, as the history books make clear. And then the final message, you can't hide. For better or worse, you can't hide from God's judgment no matter how far away you are. Do any of us need to hear that? After all, we're in church. We went out of our way on a Sunday morning to tune into the live stream when we could have watched whatever. Most of us presumably want to be here, right? Maybe. You may be here for any number of reasons, and I'm glad you're here. You may be here so that mom and dad will leave you alone. You know, if I just listen to what they say, if I just go to church, do what I'm supposed to, then I can get one day closer to the day when I can do whatever I want. Then they won't be able to tell me anything and I will be free. Maybe you're here for similar reasons, but you're at a different stage of life. Maybe you just want to keep up your image. Less common in Colorado than in some places, but there's a... Non-zero chance that someone here needs to hear that. Sometimes outward obedience, outward, alone, can be just another way to run from God, to push him away, to push away friends and family. I'm fine. Leave me alone. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Sometimes it arises out of rebellion or fear or just wanting people to leave you alone. Sometimes it comes out of insecurity You do what you do because you think that's what you have to do to be accepted either by family, by someone else, maybe by God himself. But that's not the God you see in Isaiah. It's a God who is continually warning, continually calling, continuing to be tender. Isaiah 30 verse 15, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. And even in verse 12, as he announces more judgment for Edom, he calls to them. He calls to people who aren't his people. He calls to people who have oppressed his people. Just like the apostle Paul would do one day before God stopped him in his tracks and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The prophet or the watchman who is conflicted, Crying out, crying as he calls out and mourns of judgment. 
is merely a reflection of the God who weeps as he pronounces judgment, as Isaiah 15.5 shows. Why does God send a watchman? Because God wants his people to run to safety. And where can that safety be found? We could turn to any number of passages, but turn, if you can, with me to Psalm 2, verses 9 through 12. This is a passage, by the way, that starts out, Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel. There's, there's wars and rumors of war in, in Psalm 2. Too many R's in there, sorry. But skip ahead to verses 9 through 12. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All these warnings end with... Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I love the way Derek Kidner puts this. There is no refuge from him, only refuge in him. That may be a hard truth, but it's also a sure and certain hope. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Refuge in Christ, the one who took the wrath we deserved on the cross, the one who lets us hide in his shelter from the storm of his wrath, the same one who credits us with Christ's perfect obedience if we trust in him. It's a hard truth because we have to admit how great our need is because we realize we have no other choice, no other source of salvation, a hard truth because of a dozen, dozen other reasons too. Hard truth but a true hope, a certain hope. And aren't we glad we have a watchman who gave us that hard truth, who gave us that hope? As we said, being a watchman is a thankless job, but a necessary one. So how do you thank the watchman? You listen to his call. You take refuge in his God, your God, the Holy One of Israel. Let us pray. God, our help in ages past, be our hope today, be our hope tomorrow, be our hope in years to come. Help us to find our refuge in you, in your son who loved us and gave himself for sinners like us. We pray it all in his name. Amen.